Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Dave Burke. He is back again. The reason he's back again is that we... I think partly wittingly, partly unwittingly have tapped into a vein of conversation that there was a tremendous demand for, and that is discussing culture, discussing what does it feel like to be on a team where there is a culture that is good, that is bad. How do we assess it? How do we build it? How do we grow it? Dave comes from a place that most of us only could dream of. He comes out of the Marine Corps where he got to fly every single airplane that we only dreamed about ever flying. So he got to do some of the coolest stuff one can only imagine. But he also got to function in some extraordinarily high-stress environments and function with some highly motivated people in some very difficult situations. So no one better to come back and help us continue this conversation around looking at culture within a team framework. So Dave, welcome back. It's good to be back, and, and I'd echo what you said, and we started this earlier conversation you know, several months ago now just about the idea of redefining perfection, and really what that is is just, I think, a subset of what we have discovered is a much larger conversation, and culture, I think, is a good word for it. The writing I'm working on now, and even the examples that I've been thinking about in my writing, they all really come back to the idea of what are organizations like at their core, and they're either good or they're not, and there's several reasons for either side of that, but... I think the culture discussion is where you find so many parallels in any good organization or any bad organization. So I'm glad that we're continuing this conversation. And I'm even happier that it's uh, it's productive or useful uh, outside the scope of my life experience in the Marine Corps. Uh, it's good that there's such uh, beneficial for uh, other other environments as well. So thanks for having me back. What we're finding is that the juxtaposition of the being a Marine Corps aviator, being a physician, you know, we thought, oh, cool, this will be a, a fun compare and contrast. But what's happening is it's really easy to extrapolate to any sort of organization. So if you are yeah. working at a private high school, if you are on a basketball team, if you are part of a large healthcare organization, if you are in the middle, the principles are the same. The principles are easily standardized and can easily be applied to almost any situation. So even though you learn them in the cockpit of the most sophisticated fighter aircraft ever devised by humankind, those lessons can be brought to anybody. And that's what's fun about this. And, and for me, it took me a long time to become a physician, but these are still just fundamental lessons. And that's what's kind of neat about this. So our last episode, we got deep on how do we assess team culture? That episode was a ringer. I was beat up after that, after that conversation and after the division meeting that I had with my hospitalist team the next day where I really took ownership and said, I'm going to do this stuff. It's mentally and emotionally draining. It is. Uh, and it's sort of an ongoing effort. And, and in some ways it, it gets easier to behave like that yeah. without a doubt, but it's no less demanding. I think yeah. what you're going to do is gird yourself that, hey, this is just how it is. This is just how my life has to be. This is just how the environment has to be. Um, but, you know, the weight you're pushing is still heavy weight and you're going to have to – and you get acclimated to that. But it certainly never becomes just easy or natural. Uh, it's something that you have to challenge yourself to do on a regular basis 
Uh, and the big indicators for me is when I see easy outs, like the really easy, low risk escapes from difficult situations, the real question for me is how often do I take those? Yeah, because yeah. Either it's easy to, to, to take easy outs and uh, the real lift, the real heavy lift is like, oh man, uh, am I going to put myself through this again? And, and the answer is, yeah, yes. you have to. Yes, yes I'm going to do it. That's right. Absolutely. I yeah, like that idea scary. of it's still heavy lifting because when we kind of laid out some wire framing for this conversation, it felt like it was maybe going to be a little bit of a easier, more lighthearted conversation. What does it look like to have a positive, healthy, and sustainable culture? What goes into that? But like you say, it's still heavy lifting. It's still hard work. So even if the culture is good, we're still going to have some work to do to maintain that. So let's jump in there though. I want to, I want to start with that. I want to start with, you feel like you're in a culture where things are working well. So to do that, we ended the last episode where you talked about one of the biggest challenges that you had on the day-to-day when you were on active duty was landing a fighter plane on an aircraft carrier at night. I remember reading The Right Stuff many, many years ago, and Tom Wolfe does an amazing sure. chapter on, I think he called it, probably because the aviators that he interviewed called it the skillet, and that chapter is insane. And so I want to put you back in that situation and technically extraordinarily difficult mentally extraordinary focus the commitment the risk all of that is there to have a culture what is the what is the role of a culture in a situation like that where you have to execute at the highest level what is the the importance of of having a positive culture in a situation like that and then when you reflect on what actually made that culture effective so that you could land effectively safely repeatedly let, let's let's get back into that space yeah so i mean this is a really layered question there's a lot to unpack there and i, there I don't know there's a lot to unpack so let's let's yeah, just start like this, with kind of start at the beginning let's start at the beginning you're in the cockpit okay i have to land yeah. at night are you distracted by thinking there is a disruptive influence to me doing my job that i cannot control right now because of the team around me or the team that i'm relying on so I I think for me, I would step back farther than that and just talk about there's an element of just when you're sitting there and you're about to execute a, it's a skill. I mean, it's, it's you're skill. implementing, you know, That's a right. skill. I don't think it's any different than any other skill. It's maybe, you know, it's a highly technical skill. What used to sort of captivate my brain was the risk associated with getting it wrong mm-hmm. is it usually comes back to you. And so the first step in that I think that first step in the process was just, I don't want to hit the back of the boat and explode into a fireball and kill myself. Uh, and so there's like the very basic, very lowest level of preservation. And then the fear of that experience was typically associated to me. Um, but like with anything, as you evolve and I, I got better at it. I mean, I got better at the skill. I got physically more uh, capable of executing that. And then the demands, the environment would get more challenging. You'd be farther away from a divert. The weather would be worse. The seas would be moving around. So <clears throat> you're constantly being challenged. But I don't know how much we want to fast forward, but what, what you're talking about with the idea of culture is that sort of very quickly, I, I don't know if I could place it to an event or a time, but that fear of not doing well the idea of dying wasn't really the concern. I was able to kind of keep that in its own place and sort of decouple myself from that fear, push it away and just control that and go do the job. 
you start to feel that you don't want to, you don't want to let your, your team down. You don't want to let the other guys in the squadron. Some of it is just pure embarrassment. You don't want to, you don't want to look bad. You know, you're around a group of guys. Look, we're all very close friends. We're all really tight, but make no mistake. There's a level of competition among us. There mm-hmm. is. And so you have that sort of natural friction of your closest friends in the world, which they are, uh, are also your sort of biggest competition in the world in, in some sense. And I don't mean that in a neg- negative way, not, not competition where you're going to be underhanded and, and, and undermine each other, but you're competitive to push each other. And there ultimately some level of stratification in there. You, you are kind of evaluated against your peers. So in a positive sense, there's, there's competition. And, you know, as culture gets more powerful, as co- culture grows, you recognize, okay, I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't now I don't want to let them down. Now, I don't want to do something uh, to the airplane where I create more work for the people on my team. So the maintainers are going to have extra work. If I come down hard on one wheel and I, uh, I get a code that the airplane says this was an extraordinarily hard landing, you require maintenance on the airplane. And you start thinking like, I don't want to do create work for those guys. There's uh, controllers in the in the in the ship that <clears throat> have to work harder for you if if you're struggling. And then you start to realize that hey, your squadron is actually part of a, a war effort, and you don't want to. You can build it out as far as you can possibly imagine, where your individual actions start to affect a lot more than just yourself. It started for me with just me in a plane or on a boat, and if I hit the boat, I'd blow up and die. Well, <clears throat> that's really not the issue uh, that you get away from that very quickly. And then you worry about your peers and then and it grows. And then you realize I am a critical element, albeit a very small one, but a very critical element in this giant machinery that's doing something that I actually really believe in. And if I don't do my job well, that can cascade and create real problems for the organization. And you can define organizations big or small as you want. Um but you start to realize that people around you are going to be directly affected by what you do and how well you do it a lot more than just sort of this crazy one in a million scenario where you, you, you fireball in the back. And that's not really what you should be afraid of. You should be aware that that's not good, but that's not shouldn't be your primary concern. What I'm hearing you describe is a process of maturation towards selflessness. Towards yeah, being able to say great. this, the, the, the whole group around me is actually more important than me. And I need to do the best that I can to elevate them. So it feels like selflessness is a cornerstone of being part of a culture that's really going to drive success, which is landing a multi-million dollar airplane on a multi-million dollar boat safely and where everyone comes away unharmed and can kind of high five and go get the, go get the Barney Clark. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And and you can't skip to that end. You yeah. can't skip to the level of selflessness <clears throat> selflessness that you're talking about. That's a process, and you described it, I think, very well. And and we've always talked about how applicable this is to not just the two careers that we're in, but really just the lives that we've lived. It's also applicable to really every stage of life. I mean, it's the same thing with your kids. You you can't get your kids to to put the their siblings and their parents and their families first. You know, kids start being completely self-centered and we we force it out of them over time. And at some <laughs> point there's this process where they realize, oh man, I'm part of something bigger than myself. And that that becomes the first step in the process of of that level of selflessness that, you know, and sometimes we take it for granted, but uh, the reality is that that is a process, and the thing that's hardest about it is it, re- it requires two things. One, it requires you to look beyond yourself, and when you're dealing with self-preservation, that's hard to do. 
And it requires a real investment and belief in that what you're talking about that's bigger than you is actually important. And that is something that you cannot fabricate. That really, I think, is the fabric of culture. The idea of good culture is when the authenticity of it is when people really believe this is more than me and this is more important than me. And I actually believe that everybody else thinks that as well. Mm -hmm. And if you're short of that, you'll never get there because ultimately that selfless behavior is going to have some limiting factor. When you think, well, I've now exceeded my belief in this larger thing. I'm no longer going to act in the best interest of the organization or the team or the family or what, what have you. And that strength is really powerful. And if you think about your family, you think about what you do for your kids. It's not hard. But would you do the exact same thing for a stranger? Would you do the exact same thing for a coworker? Would you do somebody who just joined the team? Would you do it for a group that you don't necessarily get along with? And you can start asking yourself these millions of questions. And that's why I think it's such a complicated, highly layered question. And it's really about how do you get to a place where the people around you really do represent more than what you represent for yourself? So we can, I think, layer right next to selflessness, right next to that perception of I am part of something larger, and accountable to other people in a, in a, in a clear way, we can layer on the need to have shared and aligned priorities. Yeah. So that again, going back, right. I want to ride in that airplane with you one day. So I'm thinking, what would it feel like to be in that? The priority again, right. Priority number one, right. You would, you would tell me what would be the first priority that you have when you're up there? Like you said, it's not self-preservation. It's not you living, What is the number one priority when you're trying to execute on that? Because we have to connect these pieces together. Yeah. That survivability piece is is always resident, but it it doesn't, it no longer sits at the forefront. It doesn't really reside in sort of, I don't want to call it a decision-making process because it's more complex than that, but you described it well. It's no longer the thing that dictates to, to to what you're doing. You know, I think about it in terms of how we, did training at Top Gun or how we did, how I did training really anywhere. And, and it translated to combat as well is it, in some ways you can look at it from a military terms as like linking the tactical to the tr- strategic. The tactical is what is the best thing for you to do given the situation you think you're in? Do I go this way? Do I go that way? Do I use this weapon or, or what's the smartest decision for me given what I, my current situation is? But if you can't link it to what's the strategy, meaning what's the best for the big picture, if I want to keep it as clean as that, it's, it's obviously more complex. It's the ability to say, if I do this, this may be best for me right now, but it actually hurts the overall, the overarching objective, the overall team. It hurts them if I do this. So I'm actually going to do something that creates more risk for me individually, at least initially, because it, it serves the overarching objectives better. Now, I'm not just going to sacrifice myself. I'm not just going to throw me and my airplane away. I'm not going to just just absorb that much risk just sort of arbitrarily. But if you think about it in the terms of what people in the military do when they're sort of awarded for heroism, it's really, I need to do this at risk to myself because it's what the people around me need for them to be effective in the long run. And look, Mark, I'm really diluting and distilling heroism. And I don't want to marginalize the significance of what that is. Those, those are critical decisions, but they're, they're driven. Everyone I've ever known that has done something in that selfless manner is driven by the belief that the people around them are actually 
mean more to them than themselves. And that's just a belief, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, or, or that connection. But it's really about the things around you matter more to you than yourself. And that's a, a bridge to cross. And not everybody needs to be a hero or be heroic to do that. It's just a recognition that what you do affects the people around you is more important than how it affects yourself. I think that that is the kernel of what a healthy culture looks like is the group that within your, the, the group that you are operating within recognizes that they are working towards a larger purpose and that by elevating and boosting the people around them, they're going to get there. So for yeah. us, the central dogma, the patient is always yeah. first, the team is always second, the individual is always third. And if we stick to that, right, with the, the, the sole, the, the, the first priority, the first order of business is for our patient that's in front of you to have the best possible outcome, to be safe, to be well cared for, and to to get through whatever they need to get through, we all move in a direction that elevates that. It takes teaching, it takes coaching, but I think that that's yeah. the kernel is helping your team recognize, here is our larger objective, right? This is that effectiveness of leadership. Here is the larger objective. Let's all work in a manner where we can elevate one another to to do that over and over and over again. And, and the dividing line there, and I think you said that well, but this is something that doesn't just come on its own. The dividing line between good and great culture or great in any other type of culture is when you get to that, that stage where you believe that you can objectively say, Hey, Hey Mark, take care of your people and they take care of you. That's how we lead around here. Oh, okay. I got it. You know, and you give these sort of, uh, you know, taglines or you give these approaches to what leadership should be like. A lot of people, and I, myself included, you're going to struggle with that. Hey, am I going to do what's best for me here? Or am I going to do what's best for the team? And the more demanding, the more risk that it creates for you, the less likely, at least initially, you're going to be willing to do what's best for the people around you. But the difference is that real belief and, and great culture is when people actually really believe that that is true, that that self, if you're going to have to sacrifice for what you're doing or, or prioritize something over yourself not only in the end does it actually just help you because it does, it's better for you, but that it's better for everybody is how you really feel and those decisions become more natural. That's when a culture is almost like on autopilot and you no longer have to wonder what people's motivations or priorities are or what are they going to do when the situation gets really demanding. Because I think that's what we're talking about is yep. when it's really hard, what do you do when it's hard, not when it's easy? And when it's really hard is when that self promotion, that self-preservation, taking care of yourself is always going to, that it has a tendency to elevate itself back up. Great cultures of people will believe, no, this isn't even a decision for me. I understand what I need to do here. Uh, and that once you cross over that line, th that's when these organizations just go do incredible things. What you just defined a sense of purpose. Absolutely. Um, without one, a doubt. One of that's my, what it is. Yeah. One, one of my great mentors who was my coach when I was just out of residency and he's still a good friend. You know, he defines personal and professional satisfaction coming out of three pillars. We've just mentioned two of them very, very quickly as part of this power of culture, right? Having effective leadership, but then having that sense of purpose. And for, for me, that was never more defined actually in my career than during the Sonoma County wildfires a few months ago, because yeah, I think we, it's a great example. We'd always talked in medicine about, you know, when there's a disaster, we're all going to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, we're going to be the, the people that are there and all that sort of thing. Some of it can feel almost like puffery because you never actually get in that situation. Sonoma sure. County has always been a place that talks about this is a great place to live and we would never leave and all these different things. Man, when that happened, those ideals were were front and center and it was something to behold. 
You know, the, the Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital, seeing the way that community pulled together, the hospital stayed open. That You can't do that without a sense of purpose, without that feeling of selflessness, without that concept of we have a priority. It's different than me being okay. It's everyone else being okay. And boy, that was something to see. And I was, I had the benefit of learning. You shared your experience with me and I, I got to see you um, do that debrief, that analysis and, and got to see you on video with, with all the folks you're doing with. And I, I got, I got the benefit of, of, you know, through you uh, kind of as a proxy learning about what that experience was like. And, you know, we talk about bridging these, you know, these industries, they're, they're not industries, obviously, but, but these different environments. Look, that's that's really combat. That's that's no different is when you pre- prepare, you you train, you put yourself in a position. And for a lot of folks, it never happens. But when it does, that's what defines all the things you've done to prepare for that environment. And and that's when it's it, it's the most powerful when there's a most at risk, because the decisions actually have real risk behind them instead of what you prepare, train, or pretend to have happen or debrief and discuss and, and put these really cool sayings up on your wall, you know, right. team before, you know, there's no I in team, things like that. Well, you get to actually test that maybe once in a lifetime, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and that's why those lessons I think are so powerful is that when you see it in action, we sort of just recognize that your purpose is to do something that whether it's physical risk or professional risk or any other risk, you know, I use that word as simply as I can, where what you do may, may cause harm for you. It may, may do damage for you, may put your literal life at risk sometimes. Uh, and the power of being able to move past that. And, and when the people around you see you, and, and I know, you know, this, when the people around you see you behave like that in a genuine manner and they look and go, Holy cow, look at what he's doing they almost always rally around you and they almost always just follow that and do the exact same thing. And that when it reinforces itself and then that bond, that connection you all share forever, even if you're never in that crazy situation again, your, your organizational culture, barring, you know, something else, you're going to be unbeatable. You're unbeatable. And when you need those people and you need to call on those folks, can you help me? Can you give up for yourself? The answer is always going to be yes. Uh, and and culture sort of goes into overdrive when you have that shared experience and they see the person step up and lead and go, holy cow, it's happening for real in the worst case scenario. And they just they just follow you. They do the exact same thing. And everybody around it just every, it cascades it to every single level. It's so interesting how this sort of jigsaw puzzle fits together because you and I don't script these conversations. No. We have very <laughs> no, we clearly don't. identified three of the things that I think any PhD, anyone you know, in the lofty university tower would say is vital to culture. Selflessness, something above yourself, that yep. sense of purpose, and then that shared experience, something that – and kneels you together where you're just hard as steel, right? There's that great story about how uh, the master swordsman in, in Japan that would make the samurai swords, there was an art and a ritual around folding these different types of steel over each other again and again and again and again. And that's how you would form the 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 quintessential samurai blade that is unbreakable. It won't chip. It won't ding. It will never lose its edge. But it's just, it takes time and you have to just do it over and over and you just have to, in, in the heat, in the pressure, right? With the hammer, you just have to keep, keep practicing, keep pushing and keep doing it. And you come out with something really, really extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I, the analogies are, 
the amount of overlap between the things that we reference in terms of our experience and what actually occurs. I mean, you can take the word combat, you can take the word military, you can take the word war, you can take the word squadron, you can take whatever word is in the vernacular of my life. And the translation, and we've said this before, the translation is identical. Yeah. It's yeah. just like the environment is different. Yeah. And, and yeah. sometimes, look, sometimes the magnitude is different. There, there's no question about it. But often the magnitude isn't different. And I get, you know, there's so much differential treatment to the, oh, you're in the military and people are shooting bullets at you and, and it's different there. And like, have you seen what, what they went through in that fire? Have you seen? And then you can create any situation you want to go, look, it's not different. The environment and the setting is not the same. But what was really at risk and what was really at play there, that's when you start to break down that barrier of, oh, it's different for them. It's different for us. It's different for him. It's different for her. It's like, no, it's the same. The lessons are the same. The implementation is the same. The outcome is the same. And you really have two directions you can go. So I wanna, you got two directions you can go. I want to push you on that a little bit because I think that you're onto something. And you're right that there is a deference to people who've been in the military. And people have told me that you know they've listened to these discussions and they say, well, you know, Dave is coming from a place where his experience is, I'm never going to experience that. My counter would be, look, you're right. I mean, we're not all going to fly a $35 million airplane and we're not all going to be putting our lives on the line on a daily basis. However, the stakes are just as high for any industry. We don't compare ourselves to one another, but we all have stakes that we have to live up to. We all have expectations that we want and we all have goals. We all want to have that sense of fulfillment. We want that sense of purpose. We want that good leadership. We want that esprit de corps. We want that good culture. And we yeah. also have people that are counting on us to deliver the goods. And, and I certainly appreciate, uh, there's a lot of gratitude for the military. There's a lot of gratitude that I personally receive from my experience. And, and I'm grateful for that. And I love that there's a lot of support for that. But the the, tr the truth of the matter is, is that the recipe for achieving sort of that level of cohesion, that sort of that that level of powerful culture, it isn't different. And yeah, you're right. M maybe you won't jump in the cockpit of an F-35 or, or or whatnot. But I, I I can assure you that the list of things that I won't do that are incredible and powerful and challenging is as long as anybody else's list. So I have one thing on my list that maybe segregates me, makes me a little bit unique, uh, which is great, but that's sort of where it ends. And and the, the, the bridge to lives and livelihoods and the bridge to uh, the powerful experiences, it's just not that far. And the quicker we can get away from different people because they work in different settings and different environments, it's different for them. It's not. It just seems like it is. And then you find yourself in some, you know, potentially catastrophic, catastrophic event like what you went through and you can replicate these potentially catastrophic events in almost any profession in almost any setting in the world when those things occur look it's it's no different you know combat is the word that we use to describe that military uh uses for for what we do when we fight and there's lives at risk there's no doubt about it but that version exists in in this in a different setting everywhere uh, and if it's not your life that that's on the line, I can assure you, if you're a leader, there are livelihoods on the line. And in the medical field, it's not even close. You're dealing with human life all the time. So the quicker we get away from, I think, thinking that everybody deals with situations differently, and the more we realize it's the exact same thing for everyone. The only thing that's different is the environment. And that's 
the least important aspect of it. It's how we behave and react uh, and interact with each other uh, and how we feel about each other and our belief that the other person will behave in the organization, the team's best interest. Uh, that defines it. Look, that's what a family is. Uh, you know, yeah. it's really, it's, there is, there's too many parallels uh, to get hung up on the setting itself. Uh, and anybody that's been through an event like what you went through understands that. And it makes you a lot more aware of what I went through because it's really not that much different. So I'm going to put then as our, as our fourth cornerstone in this is the, the ability to draw from lessons and ideas from industries, groups, companies, practices other than the one that we are comfortable with because yeah. we're all yes. on the same journey. Yeah. Look, the, the more you can be around people that you think are different based on what they do, the better it will be for you in the long run. I've learned that because all the companies that I deal with in my professional life, you know, it's healthcare to construction to tech, uh, you know, you name it, we, we, we interact with them. The problems are the same. The solutions are the same. The things that define success and failure are the same. And one of the great things that we do is when we do uh, events where we bring all sorts of different folks together from all sorts of different professions and different levels in their profession from CEO level, C-suite, top executives to frontline supervisors that are out there at the point of friction, and you put them all in a room together, it's just a matter of minutes before they align with their their different experience is really, it's really the same thing. And they learn from each other. You know, we have heart surgeons and construction workers learning from each other in these, in these events that we do. And the, the, the takeaway is what we're dealing with is almost exactly the same thing. The only thing different is the setting. And when our culture sucks, it's for the same reasons why your culture sucks. And if your culture is awesome, it's for the same reasons why our culture is awesome. Uh, and when you see that, you recognize the power of that. It is, it is powerful, man. It is incredible. So take us to a place where you really saw that power firsthand in your career, where we, you, all those pieces were in place. There was a sense of purpose. There was a sense of, there was that idea of selflessness. There was a strong build around learning from the people around you and being, uh, being open to outside ideas, all these things that we've just talked about. What is an example of when you've seen that at the highest level, experienced it directly at the highest level? Yeah, I, I honestly could think of a, a, a countless number of examples. The one that is most obvious that I'm actually not going to reference is my experience in, in Iraq. You know, there was a, a ton of that. What actually I think of the most is when I was at Top Gun, because as much as it may be counterintuitive to the listeners, the reasons to not do that, the, the laundry list of reasons to not be at that level was pretty high because everybody was really good. Everybody was super talented. They were super motivated. They were high quality, high performing folks. And with, without having to incorporate other aspects of, of culture, the organization was going to perform at a fairly high level. It was going to sort of take care of itself just because the talent pool was really good. Almost like a, like a basketball team with like all all-star players uh, is, is going to be pretty good basketball team just because these guys are all really good players. But what we what I discovered there is that it, what Top Gun wasn't about me being really good in an airplane, and it wasn't also about me being a really good teacher at the school or being a good leader for the other instructors when I was the senior instructor there as the training officer. What Top Gun teaches you relatively early on, and I had the benefit of getting the Top Gun 
before the real war started to kick off. So I did Afghanistan off carriers. I went to Top Gun in 2002. And shortly after that, Iraq kicked off. So I was at Top Gun as we were preparing for the big combat deployment to Iraq or the big combat experience in Iraq. And our mission was to prepare the Navy and the Marine Corps to go to war. And so I had sort of this accelerated timeline of this is way more than you, Dave Burke. This is way more than the, than your lecture. This is way more than your group of dudes that you're teaching with. This is way more than the 26 instructors at Top Gun. If you get this wrong, if you can't figure out a way to, to create an environment that you train and teach guys so effectively they're going to go win a war, if you get it wrong, the, the outcome is going to be catastrophic. And that burden of getting it right you can't do that individually. You can't by yourself do enough things to achieve that outcome. You absolutely have to rely on everybody. And all 26 guys had a recognition of that similar purpose. And that actually is really powerful. That, that shared purpose, that recognition of what you're doing is way bigger than you. And it's way bigger than your organization because you're affecting something beyond that. In you know, the case of healthcare, like I said, it's actually easy because you're talking about human lives, you're talking about your patients. But it was in a place where the talent pool was so good that if you did very little, guys are going to perform at a high level. But if you're going to get to a point that you live in this really tiny strata of hyper effective organizations, you're going to have to be really humble. You're going to have to be really willing to learn from people that you might have thought just a little while ago you were just better than them. You didn't have anything to learn from. And you had to recognize that that interaction, that collaboration was about something infinitely greater than just the organization at Top Gun. Uh, and when you recognize that, that that I think is what set, set my experience apart was preparing for war as an instructor at Top Gun. I think this, that's the piece, though, what you said, that anyone can take back when they're going to think about what makes their culture a good one. How do they find that sense of something greater in, in what they're doing, whether it's their family, their work, self-care, exercise program, whatever it is, finding that sense of something that's larger than you, it's a, it's a huge part of all of this. And I think that that's what we're going to need to keep learning about and building on so that we can, right, like we talked about in our previous episode, we identified how do we assess our culture? All right, what makes it a good one? I think we've laid those pieces out. That's got to be the one, though, that we that we take away back to the work that we do, back to our meetings tomorrow, back to patient care tomorrow, back to whatever it is that we do is that sense of something larger. Yeah. And like I said, you asked that first question. I'm like, oh, man, we <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time getting succinctly <laughs> to a point where you can take something. And, and you know this for me, and we've talked about this even on the podcast in the past, and anybody that knows me from Echelon Front, you know, sort of the 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 base of all of this is that you got to go do something. Yeah. You know, you got to go take action. It doesn't matter how you feel or, or how you're, if you're motivated or, or if you're really positive. It, it doesn't even matter what you learned. It only matters what you go and do. And to get to a point where people can go do something different tomorrow based on what they heard or learned or benefited from today. I mean, that's without action. None of this really matters. It's just a couple of people talking. And I've been around people my whole life that like to talk, my whole life that like to talk. And it, it's really about going to implement, going to do something. And, um, you know, this is a process, you know, this idea of culture is, it does, will not, does not happen overnight, and nor can you just sit here and wait for some giant catastrophic event to help you define your culture. Um, so in some ways you don't even see the fruits of those, of those labors, uh, until something happens or it's harder to see it, but you have to lay the groundwork well in advance. And, 
you know, the question you asked is so profound and it, it's so, it, there's so many aspects to it. The most important thing is, I hope is for us to pull something away and go, I'm going to start doing this tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to do this. Um, and that's going to be different for different people. But if you don't go do something, then it's sort of a waste. I think that that's what we're going to start laying out for people the next time we talk is, yeah, is that checklist. For sure. we're going I think it's obvious actually, that that's next. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're going to get granular and we're going to lay it out and we're going to have people, you know, go and, and test some of the stuff. And when I say people, I mean me. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go and we're going to put these things to the test in, in our daily work. The, and the, anybody uh, in a position, anybody in a position of leadership at a minimum, they, they, it shouldn't be too hard to ask yourself and put yourself in a difficult, in your mind, put yourself in a difficult position and say, how would I really act in this? Look, nobody's around me judging me. Nobody's answering. Nobody's hearing me answer my own question. I'm not writing on a piece of paper. It's not a questionnaire. Nobody's going to hear what I say. I'm just going to look in the mirror with nobody around. How would I really act? What would I really be willing to do in this setting? And that's going to, I think, give you a good indication of whether or not you really have the culture that you want. Just start with yourself. It's not that hard. It, it, look, being honest with yourself can be somewhat challenging, but we're not talking about you know being uh, overt and explicit around people around you, which may be tough for some folks. But to be able to start with yourself, uh, I think, is a good place to start. Is what am I willing to do? How do I really feel about this organization? And the point is that if you're willing to make a small change or even be honest with yourself and say, "I need to, I need to think and look at these things differently." Everybody around you is going to follow you at some point. They may do it on their own schedules, their own times. But if you start to behave differently as a leader, the people around you will behave differently. It's not that hard. Uh, it seems hard, but it's actually not that hard. Our next conversation is going to be a handful. And yeah. uh, we're going to have yeah. to, do, we're gonna have to get, kind of tool up for that. That being said, we do need to do one more thing before we end this episode. The We, we got to do another round of quick hitters. Oh, yeah, yeah. That people, was awesome. People time. loved it. I loved it. So let's, let's get back into it. All right. Quick hitters. The first one. Now this is going to be a fun one. I'm, I'm looking forward to your answer on this one. The most intimidating senior person that you ever worked for. The most intimidating senior person. So, uh, this would have to be the CEO of officer candidate school in 1991. It was a guy named Colonel Wesley Fox. He actually just recently passed away just in the last month or two. He was a medal of honor winner and, um, he was all business. I was a young, I was 18 at OCS. I mean, thought I was way in over my head. I remember being on this, uh, it's like an obstacle course, like a competition course where you're running through, uh, you know, the woods and any of the barbed wire and, and low crawling. And at some point he came out and was in the, doing this run and happened to be next to me. He was the kind of guy that just based on his life experience and, and what he had done and even just the look on his face, he just was an intimidating guy, uh, a motivating guy as well. But I will never forget, you know, Colonel Fox coming out of the woods and me looking over my shoulder thinking this dude won the Medal of Honor and I'm at OCS, you know, pretending to be a Marine. And this guy scares the hell out of me. <laughs> uh, and I think anybody ever worked for, for that guy knows that he was just absolutely uh, an incredible Marine with incredible experience. But uh, he intimidated me for sure. That would be really intimidating to have a Medal of Honor winner come out of the woods and start running yeah. shoulder to shoulder with you. I can. Uh, I remember vividly at the time. I just started yelling. I just started <laughs> screaming. I don't know why. I just started just screaming, and uh, you know, the Marine Corps, uh, you know, yeah, you know, that, yeah. that kind of situation. It was it was crazy. So, I remember it well. I think if I had done that with the most intimidating person that I worked for, it, it wouldn't have gone very well for me. So I was on call in the ICU as an intern and the cardiology attending, he was a you know full professor, famous guy, 
still a little bit scared of him, so I'm, I'm a little reluctant to say his name, but it was Dr. Demaria. And Dr. Demaria, <laughs> when, when, you, when we finished rounds, there's a great story about Dr. Demaria that he had a, a photograph in his office of him with the Pope, and the Pope is kneeling to kiss Dr. Demaria's ring. <laughs> <laughs> and when we, when we finished rounds, Dr. Demaria would look around and he'd say, all right, who's on call tonight? Say, uh, Dr. Demaria, I'm on call tonight, sir. And he pointed at me and he said, don't screw up. Yeah. And he just turned on his heel and he walked away. And oh my God, I was so freaked out. And so the next yeah. morning, you know, hadn't slept, just gone over everything. I don't know how many times did I do this right? Checked with the resident, just looked everything over, reading the textbooks. That was so intimidating. But we got through it. And as I found out later, he had actually embraced that. He'd been doing it for years, but by the time he was my attending, he had actually, he was almost like doing it as a, a parody of himself from back in the day. He was doing it <laughs> yeah, as, yeah, yeah, kind of for as sure. a goof at that point. So that was, that was good to hear. But in the moment, man, that was, that was intimidating for sure. If I had done the Marine Corps scream at that point, <laughs> I don't know, I might have been escorted out of the hospital. All right, so let's go back to the next one. This is going to be called the the Top Gun Memorial question. We're going to keep this thread going. We talked the last time about the best Hollywood representation of your profession, and you mentioned the worst one was that Pensacola Wings of Gold or something. I found an yeah, episode. Yeah, I found an episode, bad. and I watched yeah. it, and that's an atrocity. I, I, I've never flown a plane, but that was really a bad show. The best actor representation of what you did. Oh man, <sighs> that's not easy. So and. I wonder, because <laughs> I watched this movie long before I was flying airplanes. So um, I think, so you already mentioned this, ironically, the movie, The Right Stuff. Any, I don't know of a pout in the world that didn't love that movie. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. Uh, John Glenn is, was one of the first uh, Mercury 7 astronauts. And as he was a Marine, but he was a real polished guy. He's a guy who went on to be a senator. I mean, John Glenn's, there isn't a Marine pout in the world that doesn't look at John Glenn and say, that, that's who you want to be. Um, but his portrayal in the movie, the right stuff, I'm trying to think of the actor's name. It, it's a well-known actor. I'm just drawing a blank on it, but the guy who played, um, John Glenn in the right stuff kind of got him at least in my mind at the time. I was like, he was, he was playing who I knew, or I thought I knew who John Glenn was just this patriotic professional, good at everything, humble, uh, just an amazing guy put his, made his, his wife was always the most important thing and, and kind of led the charge against the engineers who didn't want to do things that were on in the best interest of the pilots like I said, the actor is an extremely well-known guy. I'm just drawing a blank, but but that's who it was. I'll try to think of it. I like it. M mine is actually someone who crosses over into into Top Gun itself, and that's Anthony Edwards, Goose. <laughs> so Anthony Edwards on ER, on the TV uh, show Okay, ER, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. He was awesome because he was flawed. He was smart. He had some great saves. He had He made some big mistakes. And he was just easy to identify with, right? You know, he's right next to George Clooney, and that's none of us look like cool. George Clooney. None of us are that charismatic, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're all goose. None of us get to be maverick, we're get, except for you, I suppose. But the rest of us, you know, Anthony Edwards, he just nailed it. And I, and I, that's you awesome. Can, you can look at that part, and you know, he had a, I don't know what a five or six season run on ER, and I, I thought he just nailed it. I thought he he must have spent some time with physicians both at work and also really learned about what it's like outside of work because he really captured it. And yeah, that, that, that's the best one. That was when I, when I thought of this question, that was the first one that leapt to mind and I couldn't come up with anything to come even close. Yeah, there you go. All right. The next one, yours are going to be way, way better. And I'm excited about this one. 
the best call to action one liners? Uh, so let's see. Uh, here's the one I remember from prepping to go to Iraq was as simple as simple as PTMO. And guys would stand up and say, they'd yell PTMO and that stands for pack your trash and move out. And it was just <laughs> get up, get your stuff and go. Um, oh man. And, uh, just, you know, I don't know if it's, it's quite the call to action you're looking for, but it was the idea that you'd be sitting around, you'd be prepping up or whatever you'd be eating, or you'd be doing something that you didn't need to be doing or waiting to go do what you're going to go do. And you're waiting for the, Hey, we're going to do this. You know, we're going to, we're going to push out and make this happen. It was a, hey, everybody PTMO. And, and, um, that was, uh, that was one that I'll never forget because I remember having to ask as a pilot, like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. Hey, pack your trash and move out. We're going. Uh, so I remember that one pretty well. Who was a lot, who gets to say that? Is it for anybody or is it for officers? Or is it for senior personnel who gets to say PTMO? So my, my experience with that is it usually came from a senior enlisted guy okay. and it was, they would usually not direct it. They say, sir, I, you know, I'm not directing it at you, but you know, when you build enough of a connection with your guys, you're all there together. And uh-huh. sort of the senior enlisted would be telling it to the other junior Marines, but I'd be right there with those guys. And you know, I'd assume they're, they're talking the whole gang, but it was the senior enlisted or the junior enlisted was a get up, get your stuff. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Let's pack your trash and move out. That's a good one. I like that. And I like the, I like the brevity of it. The PTMO. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. PTMO. In, uh, in medicine, we don't have a ton of those that I can think of, but the thing that gets people moving fast is when you hear a code blue called overhead, when you're in the hospital uh-huh. and you hear a code blue called overhead, that is a stop what you're doing and go do something else moment. Um, and the something else means, you know, hustle. Uh, that, that was always the one. And it still is that, that that's the one that gets people's attention. Conversations stop and, and everyone uh, starts moving. Uh, I, I would, I would probably put that up, but we don't have, you know, the, that sort of thing where we kind of get each other fired up or we give each other a command like that, that gets people moving. But when the, when you hear the operator call code blue overhead, that gets people moving. Fast. I bet. Yeah. All right. This is, this is the Dave Burke special, the coolest technology you ever got to interact with. And I'm the, so excited for your answer. This, the, this one's actually pretty easy. The F-35 helmet. Just the helmet. The helmet. Well, look, I dealt. So the thing that's cool about the helmet and um, is this is a piece of equipment you put it on and it's got these uh, sort of uh, ocular uh, cameras in your eyes, but you can actually see through the skin of the airplane. Um, oh so God. when you look through, you know, you can look straight ahead and you can see and there's images and there's there's information that's presented to you in your display. But you can also use it through something called the DAS, the Distributed Aperture System, which is a series of cameras on the outside of the airplane. You can actually look through the skin of the airplane. Uh, you know, and that's, uh, mentally kind of gets a little confusing at first, but get used to it pretty quick. Uh, so if you actually look down through the bottom of the jet, you can see the ground underneath you. Oh my God. And that's, that's pretty wild. Yeah. So what you're describing when you're flying the F-35 is your Iron Man. You're, you're wearing the, <laughs> that's the Iron Man helmet. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, and Holy you know, cow. it's got some uses. Some of it's kind of gee whiz. Some of it's actually really practical, but the idea of looking, you know, down through, uh, the airplane and seeing someone on the ground, you know, or seeing something on the ground uh, that you normally have to kind of tip the airplane up or look over your shoulder or something like that. But now you can just look straight through. You can see guys will talk about landing on the ship. You can look straight down and see the boat underneath you. It's pretty wild technology. I've seen some cool tech and there's some a lot of stuff I certainly can't talk about. But the F-35 helmet is is about the most impressive 
a technological thing I've ever seen. I love that you close that with things that you're not allowed to talk about. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that was too good. The, 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 the best one I saw, my friend took me to the operating room, I don't know, probably six months ago, and he does robotic surgery. He's a urologist. Oh, jeez. He, he yeah. uses the Da Vinci robot. That was <laughs> surreal. So he extraordinarily well-trained. I mean, he is a talented guy. But when you see the way the robot is connected to the patient, and look, this is all part of the consent process, right? None of this stuff is a surprise. Patients and their family know what's going to happen. But the way that this is connected, he is, he is sitting 10 feet away at a console. And I've looked through the console, and the view that you have is like it's science fiction. It is unbelievable what you're able to see. I mean, you're so deep in the pelvis. You can, the exposure is unbelievable. But it's just a series of two-millimeter incisions. And then you look over at the, at the, at the table and you see the arms just articulating with his microscopic finger movements. And you're just getting this extraordinary result and people go home the next day as opposed to having to be hospitalized for three or four days. That's crazy. It is just the craziest thing. And you can do intrathoracic surgery with them now. They're just amazing. And there's, it's, there's a great website called Gomer Blog. It's medical satire, and these guys are hysterical. I know it. My, yeah, I've seen it several times. So they did a great one on the Da Vinci robot that comes sentient and destroys a city. And that was just the best one. So it's this cartoon of a Da Vinci robot obliterating buildings and everything. It, it is well, the most extraordinary technology. And, and to, see, to see it in the hands of a surgical team and to see how quickly a patient is able to move through the surgical process, it is something to behold. Well, to show you how similar our, our, our organizations, our uh, enterprises are, is we have something called the Duffel Blog, which is, I think, maybe potentially even modeled after the Gomer Blog, which okay. is a satirical military website. Um, and there's actually one about the F-35 becoming self-aware. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, totally. uh, there's a ton. There's a lot of – I'll have to find that article and send it to you. It's Absolutely. in the Duffel Blog. But, yeah. yeah, we have very similar cultures, I think, there and uh, a lot of self-deprecation. The guy, uh, and, the guy that founded Gomer Blog came on the podcast probably two years ago. Oh, was, no. Yeah, yeah it was that's great. awesome. Yeah, he's a great yeah. guy. It was really funny. All right, last one. The best way to keep yourself awake so we talked the last time about the longest stretch. I think you said it was seventy-two hours when you yeah, guys first pushed maybe your a, a quick, yeah, a quick, you know, a couple of naps in there. But so your your community is not going to like this, and I'm not advocating it. But um, dip, dip. So I didn't. I'm not a dipper. I don't use narc, uh, nicotine. I never been a smoker. I never do any of that stuff. Uh, but when I was in Iraq, I, I, I've done it in a few different places. The two places I had to do it when I was was called an LSO, a landing signals officer. So I was on the very back end of a carrier and I was on, on the radio and I would help aircraft uh, you know, guide down to landing. And I was the one that would be the communication link between the pilot and the plane and, and as a representative of the ship is making sure that the aircraft could land safely. And as an LSO at night in bad weather after seven, eight hour combat missions, you got to do a lot of work to help guys get down to land sometimes. And you'd be on for it to be a 12 hour shift and you know your last shift might be you know, four o'clock in the morning. And, you know, a lot of time is spent doing nothing. And then you got to be on your game for 40 seconds. You know, you got to have your mm -hmm. A game going. Yeah, on. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you needed to be awake and, and I would, I would dip or something like that. When I was in Iraq, uh, being in the Humvee made me want to fall asleep. I was like a narcoleptic, you know, like in a car, <laughs> I'm always, my wife hates it. Cause if I get in a car as a passenger, I'm out, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but you can't do that in Iraq in your Humvee driving around the city. And so I had a can of dip. It was, you know, the round dip can that I got. And it was like skull apple, some horrendous oh, something gosh. that anybody that dips would just be mortified by this. 
I could literally take a shred or two and that entire can of dip, I use half of it in my entire deployment of seven months. But if I take a shred of dip and put it in my lip, it was like an injection of, I mean, I was wide awake. Oh, it gave me a headache. It was miserable, but yeah. I don't, I'm not advocating it. But if the alternative is falling asleep in a combat uh, situation, which is not okay, dip is really good uh, for, <laughs> for that uh, and not for really probably anything else. But boy, I remember that dip was uh, nicotine for whatever reason. That thing woke me up, I mean, instantly with very oh, low gosh. dose. Yeah. Ugh, I don't know if I could do that. I had a fellow when I was an ICU resident and he used to drink coffee through his dip at, when we're you know, making uh, two I've rounds seen, at look, five in the morning. Holy cow. I have seen guys, I mean, my, the, the world I lived in dip is a really common thing. And so yeah, is coffee. I'm yeah. not a coffee guy. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, uh, certainly a, a, a nicotine guy either. Uh, never did caffeine. I don't take coffee in the morning or anything like that. But, uh, I have seen people put wads and wads of tobacco in their mouth. <laughs> I'm talking, Mark, if you would have saw the amount that I took, we're talking a couple of little fibers, a, a little couple strands. of grains, yeah, yeah. and it would be in there for two, three minutes. And I, my head was spinning. <laughs> uh, I don't know how you ever get acclimated to those giant levels. I'm sure some people here that are listening are chuckling right now, but, yeah. uh, assuming you're not, uh, um, you know, dosed up to it, 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 it worked and it worked every single time. Oh, uh, like I said, I don't advocate it, but it was the right thing to do at the time. So yeah, I don't I don't know if I could do that. I think I'd be intolerable if I ever tried that. Um, so for me, it was we would you'd be up all day working, seeing patients, whatever. Then you'd be up all night, same thing, you know, admitting patients out of the emergency department, whatever. And then the next morning, you'd all meet up to review all the radiology, and you go over it with the attendings, and you're in a dark room. And it's warm and the adrenaline's starting to wear off and you just, it, you just cannot stay awake. But you, you know, you don't want the attending to look over and you're there snoring in a chair. So I yeah. would actually go straight young Frankenstein and I would take my pen and I would just jab myself in the thigh. Yeah. Over and over and over like Gene Wilder and young Frankenstein. That's and that would smart. hurt. I mean, I'm like banging on my thigh with a pen, but you know, I'm like, I gotta stay awake. Cause once you're up and moving, then I'd be okay. But for that 20 minutes that you're sitting in this nice warm room and the lights are low and everyone's kind of speaking in a low voice, it's just, you just want to get all you want to do is sleep. And it almost felt like, you know, a rite of passage, but I'll just sit there with my, with my pen, just banging the tip into my thigh <laughs> just so I yeah, can stay awake. Just staying so awake is hard in those settings. Really I mean, it's warm really room, you know, and yep. yeah, it's, it's for really sure. tough. All right. Well, I think we've given the folks enough reason to stay awake and I think enough reason to be ready for our next conversation, but this was good stuff, man. We are, like you said, we're asking big questions that just, just take a long time to unpack and we're going to keep at it. I think the next time we're going to get into some granular hard work around actually implementing these things that make a culture really sore, we'll come back probably with another round of quick hitters as well. But Dave, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's good to be here, man. I, I love this conversation and uh, there's a lot more to talk about. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.